in the 80s. Awesome. Seven of us. That's great. I was born in 1971, but my heyday was in the 1980s. Anyway, if there was a soundtrack to my 1980s middle school and high school life, you too would have definitely been on that soundtrack. In fact, when I get together with my accountability partners, you know, we've been together now for 25 years. When we go on a road trip, inevitably, there's a Spotify song fest where we're like, dude, do you remember this song? And it's from R.E.M. or the Hoodoo Gurus or whoever, anyway. Well, so what's interesting about this song that um, David and David and the guys just played is, uh, and you maybe have heard it before, maybe you haven't heard it, but it's an off of an album called War by U2, which was their third album. Here's the album cover. And what's interesting is um, 1982 was really, really busy year for them. They had just released two other albums. Bono had just gotten married to the woman he's still married to today. Praise the Lord for that. And um, they had gone on their honeymoon. They went to Jamaica. And while they were in their honeymoon on Jamaica, Bono was feverishly writing songs for the album War, which my guess is that's probably come up in marriage counseling for them. Since then, I don't know, maybe that'll come out <laughs> in a biography at some point in time. I don't know. Anyway, but what's interesting is that, you know, he wrote all these songs. They had rented the studio. They didn't have a lot of money at the time. They went to the studio, and they had, a, you know, just a short period of time to, uh, to get their songs onto this album, War. And so they went through all the songs. They recorded it. They literally had one hour left, and they did not have a final song for the album. And so they were like, what are we going to do? And so Bono literally picked up his Bible, turned to Psalm 40, and read it. He said they wrote the song in 10 minutes. They put it to music in another 10 minutes. They recorded it and mixed it in a final 10 minutes. And by the end of the hour, they had put this song, Psalm 40, down on paper. Now, for those of you who don't know, this um, song 40 that the guys just played is based upon Psalm 40. And so I'm going to read Psalm 40 for you now, and, uh, and we'll jump into it just a bit. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord, my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you were I to speak and tell of your deeds. They would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come, it is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God, your law is written on my heart. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness ever protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, 
The Lord is great, but as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. It's a great psalm. It's great poetry. The question is, what do we see in this psalm by David? Well, there's a document that's been written now for several hundred years called the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us to ask three questions when we read Scripture. The first question we're to ask, or a question we're to ask about Scripture is, what is my sin and misery? Or, or what about this text speaks to my brokenness? Two, how is grace or Jesus the solution to this problem in my life? And then finally, what is my response to this grace? Those are the three questions. What is my sin and misery? How is grace the solution? And finally, what is my response to this grace? Let's look first at David's sin and misery and see if we can't identify just a bit. First of all, what we see is that David feels trapped, and he feels like he's drowning. He feels trapped, and he feels like he's drowning. Listen to these verses. He lifted me up out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. Verse 12, for troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. The uh, commentators um, that translate Scripture use this, uh, talk about the slimy pit, the mud and the mire. They call it the pit of destruction, the cistern of tumult. We see several places in Scripture where uh, this imagery is used. In Psalm 69, David says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my soul. I've sunk deep in mire that is mud, and there's no foothold. There's no place for me to put my feet. I've come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I can't do anything. It's like I'm stuck in a deep storm drain. There's nothing to put my feet on. I can't hang on to anything because it's slippery and it's slimy, and I'm starting to go down. David feels trapped, and he feels like he's drowning. Is that a familiar emotion for any of you? Maybe exam week, right? Maybe some big project at work that you have to do. Maybe it's your children who are getting out of control, you're worried, aren't walking with the Lord. It could be any number of different things, but surely we can identify with this feeling of feeling like we're trapped and feeling like we're drowning. Yeah, I mentioned that we were at the men's retreat this weekend, and our speaker um, had us at the beginning of each of our sessions fill out uh, sort of a, a feelings inventory. And this is really funny for the guys, because if you talk to most guys, in general, if you say, hey, what, what different emotional emotions do you feel? They might say, well, I feel angry sometimes, I feel excited sometimes, I feel happy sometimes, and I feel hungry sometimes. Like that would be sort of their emotional range. And they gave you sort of a list of positive emotions and a list of negative emotions. As I sat there each session, I was trying to be really honest, and each session when I filled out my emotional sort of like, you're supposed to put a check or circle the ones that you feel, and frankly, all of mine were kind of on the hopeless side. So I'm a pastor, I'm a professional Christian, I'm at a men's retreat, we're singing hymns, we're gathered with all these other guys, we're listening to a speaker tell us about Jesus, and what I really felt more than anything was hopeless, right? I felt kind of despair. I felt like life was too much and I wasn't enough, and that's exactly what David is saying here. He's, he's saying, look, I feel trapped, I feel like I'm drowning, right? And if you can't identify with those emotions... Just keep living a little while longer because they will come. He feels trapped. He feels like he's drowning. But there's a little bit more to it than just that, right? It's not just that something bad has happened to him or that life has dealt him a tough hand. It's more than that. 
what we see in this passage is that it's actually that his sins or his sin, his brokenness, his rebellion has finally caught up with him. Listen again to the same section of verses. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, for troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. And so David says, it's not just that something bad has happened, it's that I've done something, and now I'm having to deal with the implications of these things that I've done. He's surrounded by troubles. He's about to give up, but he sheds more light on the situation by saying, it's my, my sin, it's my brokenness, it's my rebellion that has led me to this place. Again, can you identify with that? Maybe it's debt, maybe it's pornography, maybe it's lies, maybe it's cowardice, maybe it's greed, maybe it's a desire to control because you're fearful and you don't trust in God. But what happens is that when we sin, whether it's the big overt surface level sins, but it's definitely the lower, deeper sins of control and power and not trusting that God is good and not trusting that He loves us and not trusting that He can be trusted, those are actually the sins that lead us into our pit of despair. It's actually those deep sins that get us into real trouble. So David says, I feel like I'm drowning. I feel like I'm trapped, and I know that I'm responsible for where I am today. Now, the last thing we see about his sin and misery is he does not know what to do, and he's about to give up. Listen again. We're going to look at verse 12. It says, for troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. Like, I can't see. I can't see a way out of this. I can't see a way out of this divorce. I can't see a way out of the lies that I've told. I can't see a way out of these bad investments. I can't see a way out of whatever it is, fill in the blank, whatever it is that's causing your despair. I can't see a way out. I don't know what to do. That's what David is saying. But he goes on to say, not only can I not see what to do, I am about to give up. They're more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. My heart fails within me. There was a point um, this weekend on the men's retreat where we went to the Raccoon Mountain Caves, and we were caving through, you know, all of these sort of pitch black, slimy, wet, underground caverns. And there were places where all these big guys, of whom I am not one, um, had to crawl through spaces that were probably 18 to 15 inches high and, you know, just teeny little, you know, they were probably, you know, two feet wide, and you had to sort of wiggle your way through there. And as I was climbing through these things, I found myself thinking, do I really trust in God, right? Because right now, if the lights went out, I might not be able to get out of here, right? If an earthquake occurred and everything crumbled down on top of me, I, there's nothing I could do to save myself. There's no illusion of control, right? Either God is sovereign, either He's my strength and my salvation, or it's up to me and I'm in big, big trouble, right? Again, that's what David is saying is he's saying, I'm hopeless, I'm in despair, I know my sin has left me here and led me here, and I don't know what to do, and I'm about to give up. Let me lead, read you a story very quickly um, about a woman who's an alcoholic, and I really thought about this because a buddy of mine is going through um, a real wrestle, struggle with alcoholism right now, but it really paints the same picture of feeling trapped, really someone's decisions and, you know, sort of bad decisions leading them to that place and not knowing what to do. I'm just going to read this little section of her story. She says this, my name is Annie, and I'm an, I'm an alcoholic. My first drink 
led to my first blackout. Alcohol took away the shyness, paralyzing self-consciousness. I had this weakness of trying to do something about it. It gave me a warm and happy new feeling that freed me up to do anything. I danced at parties, yelled in the street, sang on buses, hitchhiked across London, talked to strangers. I had no fear of anything, right? It was, it was my salvation. It was the thing that gave me strength, helped me overcome fear. I loved it. I thought it helped me to be the real me. I didn't want to do anything that didn't involve drinking. The movies were boring, going for walks. You've got to be kidding. I learned early to have a few drinks from my mom's cupboard before I went out, filling miniature bottles to take with me. I thought everybody did it. I look back at my teens and see that I have no idea what my family were doing and no memory of spending any time with them. This thing that she was looking for her salvation in to sort of solve her problems of fear and anxiety was actually destroying her. She goes on to say, I went to Spain for six months. My university days are still a black hole full of twinkly lights, and I was actually hospitalized with alcohol poisoning. I came back and got married to another heavy drinker, a workaholic who took care of all the boring stuff like bills and housework. I was a charming wife. He never knew, though, what he was coming home to. We had two beautiful children, and drinking uh, to party was no longer an option. My secret drinking then started. Hiding bottles, trying to hide the fact that I'd had a drink, sneaking extra drinks whenever we had company, stealing money for a drink, making any excuses to buy a bottle, and it only got worse. I started to feel ashamed, a quick burn that another drink would fix, right? The drink was the only thing that would get rid of my shame. I managed to divorce my husband for his unreasonable behavior and found somebody else who drank like me, but I was in big trouble now, desperately unhappy. My life was in chaos. I would come to on the kitchen floor in the morning and then try to get the kids to school. The house was in the process of being repossessed. I went to counselors, psychologists. I blamed my childhood. I blamed my mother. I blamed my husband. Anybody and everything, I was in trouble, right? She's drowning. She feels trapped. But if only I could sort out the money I borrowed and begged from anybody who stood still long enough. If I could only find the right man, right? The first two weren't the right men. If only I had a different upbringing. If only I got the right job, then I'd be okay. I kept trying to manage all of this to save myself with the same outcome, drunk and in a worse mess. I wore an old wax jacket, a bottle up each sleeve and half inside the pocket. I hadn't cut my hair for years. And then one day, a group of kids sitting on the wall at the end of my street shouted Alki at me. I was furious, burning with shame, if only they knew the sort of life that I had had. And this is a, a pretty horrifying picture of despair, right? Of feeling trapped, of feeling stuck, trying to save herself, but only making matters worse. And most of us, if we can't understand that picture of despair, we at least have our own pictures of despair as a point of reference. Maybe it's credit card bills or a distant spouse, a careless child. Maybe it's you know, too much housework and laundry and school lunches. Maybe it's three papers and five exams in one week. Maybe it's something as heartbreaking as divorcing parents. But very quickly, we can come to a place where the whole world looks black, right? or at least dark, dark gray. And sometimes our black world is a world that we've actually made for ourselves through our own destructive and sinful decisions. We've made our beds, and now we're sleeping in it. And in our beds, we're filled with despair and guilt and shame and exhaustion. We don't know what to do. We cannot see 
our heart fails within us and we're ready to give up, right? Some of us have been there before. Some of us are there right now, right? Some of us are on their way there. Like, what is my sin and misery? My sin and misery is that apart from God, I'm scared to death. I do not know what to do. I cannot save myself. I'm only making matters worse. I am trapped and I'm drowning. That's what David says. So again, the good news is the Heidelberg question, catechism gives us a second question, which is, how is grace the solution? Let's jump in very quickly, and let's first say what's not the solution, because I do think David addresses that. He says this, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, right? In other words, an option for us as we're drowning is to look to people who might save us, to those who turn aside to false gods, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but my ears you've opened, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. So our tendency when we're in despair, when we feel trapped, when we feel like we're drowning, when we're in trouble, our tendency is to try to save ourselves in one way or another. And what David does here is he talks about two different ways in which we try to save ourselves. He talks about the irreligious route, and he says one of the things that we do as human beings when we're trapped and we feel like we're drowning as we look to humans to save us, right? And, it, and it, these are good things, not bad things. We look to Oprah, we look to Dr. Phil, we look to Dan Allender, we look to Larry Crabb, we look to a boyfriend, we look to a girlfriend, we look to our spouse to save us, we look to a physical doctor to save us, or a psychiatrist to save us. We look to all these things. We may look to false gods to save us. We may think, well, if I can earn more money, right? We saw that in the story of Annie, Right? We say, if, if only I had a certain career, then I could get out of this pit, right? If only I had a better diet, if only I had a better workout regimen, if only I had new friends. We look to all of these earthly things to save us, but in the end, none of them was intended to save us, right? They're all good, but none of them can save us, but they're all the irreligious route, and many of us take those routes. I take those routes on a daily basis. The other thing that, talks, that David talks about here is the religious route. You know, what he says here is he says, sacrifice an offering you did not desire. Like, what? Wait a minute. Like, why do you not want that, right? And then he goes on to say, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. God wants something else. But the truth is, when we feel like we're drowning, when we feel like we're trapped, we do the same thing, right? We think, well, I'll be more obedient, right? We think, I'll read my Bible more, have more quiet times. I'll go to church more. I'll listen to Christian music. You know I'm desperate if I'm willing to do that, right? And again, I'm totally joking. I listen to Christian music. Um, these are all, they're all good things. They're all religious things. But the problem is that none of them can save us, right? Your husband can't save you. Your wife can't save you. Reading your Bible more cannot save you. Going to church cannot save you. Those are not the solution, David says. And so the question is, what is the solution, right? What is the solution? The solution is mercy, right? The solution is grace. The solution is Jesus. The solution is a heavenly Father who loves us. Listen again to the words of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. What do I do? I wait for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. What do I do? I cry out. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. I could not lift myself out. There was nothing that I could do. He set my feet on a rock. I couldn't tread water any longer until God placed my feet upon this rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. 
Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. But as for me, I'm poor and needy. I don't have what it takes, right? Blessed are the poor. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. See, David has not saved himself. The proud did not save him. A career did not save him. Being obedient didn't save him. Listening to Christian music didn't save him. His father, his heavenly father, saved him. David had almost given up, and in despair, he cries out. Isn't that just like us? (laughs) We try to climb out. We try to swim. We try to save ourselves. We try to do all these things, and our last-ditch effort is to cry out to the Lord. But you know what? God's actually okay with that. And God hears not only David's cry of despair, but he hears our cries of despair. God lifts David's limp and exhausted body out of the pit. He sets David's feet upon a rock, upon a firm place to stand. God shows David mercy. It sounds like David has gotten himself into this mess, and yet God's love and faithfulness protects him. God is his help. God is his deliverer. David's sin is not a barrier to God's work in his life. David's sin is the reason for God's work in his life. We've now lived in Rome almost 11 years. So when we moved here, Levi was less than a year old. When he was probably about two, um, we went out to um, the dried up lake on Barry's campus. And as some of you know, as you park in a little gravel lot and get ready to walk down the path, sometimes there's a big mud puddle that's at the front entrance there depending on how much rain has fallen. And uh, Levi and I had gone for a a walk around the lake, and then we sort of come back around the lake. And uh, I was walking to the car, and, you know, Levi was probably two at the time. um, And as we were walking to the car, I was like, hey, man, come with me. And he saw the puddle, and he was pretty interested in the puddle. His pockets were already pretty full of rocks, you know. I already had like eight or nine sticks in my back pocket that he was asking me to hold on to for him. And he saw the puddle, was pretty interested. And as I was walking to the car, I was like, hey, man, come on, come with me. And I said, you know, stay away from the puddle, you know, watch out. And uh, as I kept, you know, sort of walking away, he disregarded me and uh, didn't obey me, and he started making his way over to the puddle. And I thought for a second, well, I'm just going to have to let him kind of disobey and maybe experience the consequences of whatever the disobedience might be. And Levi, you know, sort of uh, dawdled over to the puddle. And he was sort of bending over, and as he was bending over looking in the puddle, he slipped on some mud and just went plop, face first, (laughs) in this big mud puddle. Now, some of you may think that I'm the worst father on the planet for letting that happen and not rescuing him, but part of me knew that I needed to let him experience that failure. And so as he laid there sort of face down in the mud puddle, he pushed himself up and he started He started to cry out. But the truth is, I was already on the way. Part of what David is saying here um, is that God is his deliverer, right? That he's your deliverer. Your sin is not an obstacle to God, right? 
Your sin is not a, a barrier to God, right? It's not a barrier to God's work in your life. Your sin, your brokenness, your rebellion, your despair, your hopelessness is the reason that God is on the way, right? It's the reason why he came, right? He desires to show us mercy. Jesus didn't have to become a human being. He didn't have to come to rescue us. But before we cried out, God was on the way. What, how is grace the solution? Grace is the solution in that we have a merciful heavenly Father who is on the way to save us even before we cry out. So what's our response to this grace is the next question the Heidelberg asks, tells us to ask. Let me read, really starting in verse 3, and I'll, we'll see what our response to this grace is. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. How do we respond? We worship, right? We sing a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. We trust in Him. How do we respond? We sing. We trust. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. We, we proclaim our trust in Him. Our hope is in God. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. We don't remain silent about God's grace and about His mercy. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I don't hide it away. Right? It's not anything to be ashamed of. In fact, it's something to be proclaimed. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. Right? We worship, we proclaim, we trust, we wait upon the Lord. We do cry out, believing that he's already on the way. In fact, he already came, right? As you look around the room this morning, there are tables with bread and wine. We're celebrating the Lord's Supper or communion, call it what you will. But it's always the same thing. This meal of bread and wine is ultimately a picture of our hope in Jesus, our Savior, our help, our deliverer. Listen again as I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock, right? The rock. Our only hope, our only salvation is in Jesus, the rock of our salvation. He gave me a firm place to stand. This meal today of bread and wine communicates that your hope is in Jesus alone, not in the absence of badness in your life, not in the presence of goodness in your life, not in um, believing even all of the right things, but this meal is a declaration of faith and trust in Christ alone. And so for all of you who trust in Christ alone as your hope, as the rock, this meal is for you in your desperation, right? And you don't have to wait any longer because it's here right now. But for those of you who do not trust in Christ alone as your salvation, for those of you for whom Christ is not the rock, I would simply ask you sit back and watch the people of God as we receive this bread and wine and this declaration and proclamation that Jesus is our hope, our strength, our salvation, and our rock. Hear now the words of institution. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, 
the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to pray, and then after I pray, I'm going to simply ask that you sit and you wait patiently upon the Lord, that you remember that your sins, all of them, past, present, and future, have been canceled in Christ if you trust in him alone. Father, thank you for this.